Hey, everybody, this is the Variety and iHeart podcast, The Big Ticket. I'm Mark Malkin. Today, I'm talking to Emma Corrin, the breakout star of season four of The Crown for her work as Princess Diana. Even though most observers say she has an uncanny resemblance to the late people's princess, Corrin says she just doesn't see it. She also talks about her newfound fame occurring while the world has been in lockdown due to COVID-19. Then later, Gina Torres. The actor talks about her new role opposite Rob Lowe on 911 Lone Star, what she thinks of the fourth Matrix movie, and where she keeps the much-talked-about dress she wore to Meghan Markle and Prince Harry's wedding. So stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. By now, most of you have heard of Emma Corrin. The 25-year-old Brit became a household name overnight for her work as Princess Diana on the fourth season of Netflix, The Crown. While her newfound fame has been extraordinary, Corrin hasn't had to cope with an overbearing spotlight because the fourth season premiered during the pandemic. I caught up with her over Zoom from her London apartment that she still shares with some friends. How are you? How are you holding up in this crazy life that you have now where everyone's talking about you but we're all in lockdown surreal um it kind of feels like something very very big has happened but i can't quite understand what it is because i'm experiencing it from the confines of my flat so (laughs) yeah it's quite (laughs) surreal did you ever in your wildest imaginations ever ever think one you'd be playing a princess two you'd be playing princess diana no. I remember <laughs> being on holiday with my family about years ago, maybe, when The Crown, maybe the second season had come out or something. And I remember them joking about who was going to play Princess Diana. I think one of my brothers was like, oh, Em, you should play Princess Diana. And I remember saying, like, you know, I was at university at that time. I was like, in my wildest dreams. Very strange to think back on those kind of moments now. So what does your brother say now? (laughs) Um, I haven't actually reminded him of that conversation I should do. Yeah. (laughs) You know, your mom was always told she looked like Princess Diana. You were told you looked like Jodie Foster. So when it came down to it, did your family and friends say, well, of course then. Yeah, I think my friends thought it was really funny because, yeah, it had been a kind of running anecdote that that my mom, when she was younger, looked a lot like her. But I, yeah, I'd never got that myself. I think, yeah, a lot of people have said um, Jodie Foster, which is weird. (laughs) Do you see it now, though, when you either look at the show or just look at you? Oh, yeah, maybe I do look like her a little bit. Is that weird? I've lost all conception of what I look like or she looks like. Honestly, it's so strange. I have no idea. It's one of those things that I just think you can't see yourself yeah so what is the wildest thing that's ha- i mean i i just have to go back to the fact that the world is so weird right now we've all watched it so what's like the oddest thing that's happened to you because it's not like you're walking down the street that often where people are going to say oh my god that's you yeah i i guess it nothing really because i've been in my flat pretty much because we've been in lockdown so um yeah, I've been on a few walks around where I live and people have been like, oh, oh my God. Um, I think the funniest thing that happened was that my dog got recognized, not me. I think I was what? on, I was, <laughs> I was in Hampstead, on Hampstead Heath, near where I live, and someone 
I passed these two girls and one of them said, oh my God, isn't that Spencer? And that was my dog's name. And I just thought, what world are we living in? <laughs> so funny. <laughs> it was really funny. Is there, is there something sort of, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of comforting to know that the fact that this is all happening at the same time, you don't have to be thrust into that crazy spotlight yeah. right now. You have yeah. time to sort of compute it, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I've been reflecting on this a lot because I was initially so sad that I we weren't going to do a press tour and we weren't able to have a premiere or celebrate together as a cast because I think that's part of, even though promo can sometimes be quite tiring, I think it's a lovely moment where you get to celebrate what you've made together with your castmates. And it was very sad. I mean, I hadn't, I've seen Josh and Helena a couple of times, but like, apart from that, I haven't really seen anyone since March that when we still feel like filming, but actually on reflection, I think it has kind of been, there is a silver lining because it means that the, obviously, yeah, things have gone a bit crazy and suddenly a lot of people know who I am and have watched the show, but I haven't, I've kind of been protected from it in a, in a way because I've been inside um, just with my friends who are amazing and keeping me grounded and that kind of thing. But also for me, what will always be the most important thing in anything I do is the work. And I think, although I love events and parties and traveling and that kind of thing, doing press from my room in my flat and just talking about the work without going anywhere and like having all the glitzy bits means it's been very focused on the craft. And I think that that's a lovely thing. And I, yeah, that's how my friend put it, which was, a, I think, a very lovely thing to say. Was there ever a time when you were on set and you're in one of the iconic outfits, wardrobe, and you said, you know what, let me go to Starbucks right now. Let's see what would happen if you walked into Starbucks. I honestly don't know. I remember like we filmed in some central London locations where it was quite funny because I'd have to be like, I'd have to walk down like a street. I think it was when we were filming the bits outside the primary school and it was really funny to see people think, what? But actually, I think if you take me out of context, people wouldn't have put two and two together. Um, yeah. I think they would. I think I think they thought they'd be seeing a ghost. What, yeah. what would happen? <laughs> double take. I experienced quite a lot, especially from like supporting actors who I think were there. Obviously, knew what the show was and what they were doing, but hadn't necessarily seen us before in costume, at least. And so it's quite funny when suddenly you come on set and everyone's like, "Oh my god!" It's very sweet. Tell me about the first time that you did look in the mirror. You're in one of the iconic outfits. Was it surreal? Was it, oh, I'm just wearing a costume? How did it feel? For me, like, for me, costumes and the wigs and the makeup are always like the cherry on top of everything that comes together. I kind of describe it as if you're wearing one of those morph suits that zips up to the very top. <laughs> and it's kind of like all those elements are kind of like the final zip when you seal it all together. And all the rest of the work is all on the inside. And so it really is exactly as you say, like you're, I would be in my trailer and you know, your outfit would be hanging up and I'd get out of my like pajamas or whatever I was wearing and makeup. And suddenly, yeah, it does. It really helps you get a sense of 
yeah a sense of her at that time and also because we were, I was playing her over such a long period of time and actually so much of her clothing dictated the period that we were focusing on I mean how she like those yellow dungarees she meets she um wears when she meets Charles for the second time you know that puts you in a very different place within her than you know one of the power suits later on in the series when you were reading the scripts were you Emma you Emma did you ever cry did you ever get very emotional yeah I did I got very emotional I think at three points I got very emotional reading about when she left her flat actually filming the scene where she's walking down the stairs and her flatmates are at the top of the staircase and they're saying me right and she's like don't be silly i'll see you soon and you know that really she's never going to be able to be with them in the same way and i live with friends from university that i've known for five six years now and i felt incredibly emotional at the thought of being snatched from you know, your, your friends, your, the place where you feel comfortable and the place where you feel loved and secure and catapulted into this very cold world, cold new world. Um, I cried then. And also I found Josh and I, I know both found the bits when they were happy in episode six, very tender and very raw because we had to focus a lot throughout the filming that we didn't play the ending and play the tragedy. And it was very hard to play those moments of happiness, knowing it was coming. But when we did, it was very kind of beautiful because I think we had an interviewer a few months ago say, oh my gosh, for those few moments, I totally forgot what happened, how it ended. And I just thought, oh my God, they're going to make it work. And it's like the saddest thing. <laughs> you realize that like they were so great when they were great. And there was a lot of, things that came into play that made it very complicated. Yeah. So let's talk about your first day going to set or going to shoot or going to rehearse. Did you look up at your flatmates and say, I'll see you soon? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bye guys. I'm very, I'm going to be a very different person when I go come back from this. <laughs> um, yeah. I remember, I think it was the read through. We had a read through and I remember being picked up in a car and I think I took my dog to the read through, which was very funny. And I remember feeling this incredible trepidation. Um, and I remember walking in and there was like this long, long table with everyone's name cards. And I'd got that really early. And I just remember walking in and it was me and the name card on my left said Gillian Anderson and on my right to Josh O'Connor. Then opposite me was Olivia Coleman and Helena Bonner. And I was just like, I think I must have a picture on my phone of the table because my mind was just blown. I was like, this is absolutely terrifying, <laughs> but it, at the same time, incredible. And um, I think it, I owe that cast a great deal because it could have been the most terrifying, overwhelming experience. And at times it definitely was, but it is the happiest job. A lot of people say this. I know Olivia says this a lot, but it is genuinely the happiest job. And everyone is so warm that I really wasn't given a second, like a chance to feel out of place or, yeah, it was wonderful. If you ran into Prince Harry or Prince William on the street, what would you say? It would be very hard to know what to say because just, 
just because I play this character, it doesn't mean I have any understanding of what, you know, Diana was like at all. So although I would want to say like, she was incredible and I understand, I also have no authority to say that at all. I've brought to life Peter mm -hmm. Morgan's character. I think to be honest, if I pass on the street, I'd probably be so conflicted about what to say. They'd probably be long gone before I actually decided what to say. I can imagine like clutching their hand and looking to their, into their eyes and searching for the words and not being able to quite communicate it. I think there's, there would be too much to say. Um, yeah. But I feel, I feel for them greatly in, yeah. If you were able to ask Diana a question, what did you really want to ask her? What did you, is there that one question that sort of would help you with the role or just to understand her more? Um, that's such a good question. I guess one of the ones that immediately comes into my head was like, would be sort of, what made you fight in that moment where you, decide that you're, you want to take back control of the narrative, I suppose. What made that decision for you? What changed? Because um, I think we see that at the end of the series, it's sort of where we leave her, that look of simultaneous defiance and complete like sadness at the end as the series finishes. And I think that was always spoken of about as like that, this moment where she decides that she's done and she has to fight for herself now. And I, I don't know if that was actually a moment that she experienced, but I think I'd be really interested to find out when she stopped fighting for them and stopped fighting to fit in and decided to fight for herself, I suppose. What did you think when you heard her brother and members of the government saying that there should be a, a warning on the series saying that this is a work of fiction. It's difficult. I think that I don't think it should be necessary. I think it is very clearly a dramatized version of events. I mean, yeah, this is fictitious. The, the, this is, it is just fictitious in the same way as, you know, people don't, mistake succession of what actually happened with the Murdochs or like they don't confuse you know there are so many things that are dramatized the whole time and I feel like as a population we are aware of that to a great extent I think it just come but I also understand that it comes from a place of sensitivity and protectiveness of the royal family here and of Diana so I, I understand it I just think that I think I guess from from our point of view as the cast or the creators and the and from the point of view of creators it's so obviously fictitious because all of the work we do goes into creating this world we're never doing impressions we're never doing mimicry you know the the facts are there like they went to Australia they had a son called William they um you know, went to this lunch or this party, but everything that fills those scenes, the substance of everything that we create is, is fictitious. Did you take anything home from set? I have, I think I still have it. I think I, I have, there was one day that we were set up in her bedroom and they had a load of like costume jewelry on the side and I took a necklace. I took a gold chain and I was just like, I'm gonna keep this because I need to take something 
as a memory. I've said this quite a lot and I'm still waiting for the call from Netflix to be like, we have our chain back, please. You know what? If they do that, you need to call me and we need to call them out on it. If they ask yeah. for that back. Um, you know what, though? I remember quite early on, I think I'd been at the studio for some fittings. I remember someone coming to me and being like, oh, Emma, after this, you know you're popping down to the prop department, the art department, and they've got like a setup they want to show you. And I was like, what? And I remember going along and being ushered into this like huge warehouse room. And they'd constructed this table, which was essentially meant to be Diana's table, with complete replicas of everything. That Because I think she was pictured quite a lot in like portraits, I suppose. When you have like your royal picture taken or whatever, sitting with, in, next to a table, which would have been her dresser maybe or something. And so they'd managed to find a lot of different bits and pieces that were actually the actual replica of what she had on her table. For instance, she had apparently she had a loads of frog statues. She was obsessed with frog statues, which is which me and Ben Karen loved because of the whole like prince, princess, fairy tale right. element to everything. But also her perfume, which was from Penhaligon's. I actually have a bottle here. I have her perfume, which is quite creepy. Um, and things like that, like the exact hairbrush she used or the little like I don't know, pots and lotions and potions. It was terrifying. I remember walking in and being like, oh <laughs> my God, this is so creepy. And I remember them saying, do you want to smell her perfume? And me thinking, I don't know if I do. <laughs> I really don't know if I do. <laughs> because someone, I'm a very smell oriented person. Mm -hmm. I remember like, I remember thinking this could be so overwhelming for me. I, do, I don't know if I want to right. know what she smelled like, but yeah, it was, it was so, so mad. The crown are just incredible. So did you ever spray that perfume? What? I did have a bottle of it. It's sitting in the back of my cupboard because I got invited by Penhaligons to go and try some of their perfumes. And whilst picking out mine, they said, oh, did you know? And I was like, what? And they, and they were like, well, did you know that this is where Diana got her perfume? And I was like, oh my God, no, I didn't know it was you. And they said, well, we'd love to give you a bottle of her perfume. And I thought, that's so nice. Also, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. <laughs> right. Or Bluebell something. And I just, it's in the back of my cupboard and I don't really know what to do with it. You've never spray it. You've never put it I on. Never, I can't. I can't. It's too much. Smell is too personal to me. Well, Emmett, thank you so much for chatting with me. This was wonderful. I'm so glad I got to meet you. Likewise, likewise. Hopefully in person one day. That was Emma Corrin. We're going to take a short break, but when we return, I catch up with Gina Torres to chat about her new work on 911 Lone Star, the fourth Matrix movie, and her Suits co-star, Meghan Markle. If I could be you. And you could be me. For just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside. Each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. Gina Torres has been acting for close to 30 years. She's most known for her work as Jessica Pearson on Suits. She's also appeared in the Matrix franchise. Now at age 51, she joins the cast of Fox's 911 Lone Star opposite Rob Lowe. 
we chatted from her home in Los Angeles. Did you know about 911 beforehand? Did you know about Lone Star beforehand? Or did you have to become familiar with it once you sort of got it in, got into it? Well, I did. I, I knew because I live in LA. So there, <laughs> you know, I, the um, University of Billboard um, certainly <laughs> um, educated me on what's on TV. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I had time to watch any of it, right. um, but sure, you know, driving down and go, oh, that, oh, Angela Bassett, good for her. Yeah, oh, Peter Krause, I love him because I had just done the catch, and um, I was like, ooh, that looks good. For okay, <laughs> sort of move on, um, and then because uh, I was doing Pearson when nine one one launched, and then I wasn't anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and and, uh, um, and I guess to my near says I was busy when when Lone Star you know uh, came along. Right. I believe him, and and uh, really true story. Quite by accident, I was home, and the TV was on and it just happened to, I mean, I'm sure I clicked over from streaming something and it just like was on and I'm like, who are these people? What's this storyline? Oh my God. They're, I mean, look at all these gorgeous, young, diverse yes. like characters and that's so interesting. And then I left the room and Rob Lowe's on and like, <laughs> Did somebody change the channel? Oh, no way, it's the same show. <laughs> and, not, and not in a bad way. It was just like, right. I'm trying to make sense of the world that I'm watching. And so I just sat down and I must have left the room when the when the 911, you know, what's the emergency thing came on? Um, because then finally I'm sitting there and, th and that happened. And I thought, holy, no way. Yeah. Okay. All right, Fox. I see you. <laughs> and it's pretty. It's pretty amazing when you really look at the not only the cast but then the storylines. Yeah. Where it's just, you know, I know we were just talking about our ages, but could you ever have imagined something like that when we were growing up? No. Maybe a little Archie Bunker, but were we even? Did we even understand exactly what Norman Lear was doing? Probably right. not, you know? And you look at this and it's, it blows my mind. Yeah, yeah, 100%. A, pr a, procedu a procedural. No, you're abs and you're 100% right because we did, I consumed television when I was Yeah, a kid. me too. Um, and so when you bring up Norman Lear, when you bring up the stuff that, that we, I mean, even Happy Days, to some mm -hmm. degree, like was, you know, the, it was, all, it was a, it was seven years of coming of age stories, right. you know, in, 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 in this way. And it was so, and I not, honestly don't think I'm being nostalgic about it because it mm -hmm. wouldn't keep coming up if, 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 if it wasn't really pushing the envelope and the storylines mm -hmm. that he told back in the seventies. Um, whether it was the Jeffersons or Good Times or, or Maude or, you know, all of those shows, um, even uh, Mary Tyler Moore, which predates that by just a little bit. Um, and then we kind of went into this safe place. And then we kind of went into this, dare I say it, 
stupid place. <laughs> New York. I dare you to say it. You said it. You can say it. It just, it wasn't challenging anymore. And there were voices that kind of popped up every, like Roseanne was an example of that. Mm. But as, as a person of color, when we lost the Cosby show, when we lost a different world, when we lost um, living single, when we, it, nothing replaced it. Right. And so we took this huge step back um, fighting for a voice, mm. a consistent voice. Um, and so to answer your original question, to, to now sort of move into this space where there's a, where the hunger is being addressed, where mm -hmm. the necessity for these voices and these storylines is being acknowledged. It's mm -hmm. such a privilege to be able to be a part of that. Do you remember the first time you saw Rob Lowe? Like, <laughs> How old were you? Because I will tell you specifically, he's the one of the two reasons I know I'm gay. <laughs> and, and he is specifically one of the reasons why a lot of people know they're straight. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure. I mean, it was a poster hanging in my best friend Heather's bedroom when I was in high school. And I would look at it. It was a black and white. And I'd look at it. And that's how I knew. Do yeah. you remember the first time when you... Because, I mean, that's our... Oh, I mean, yeah. Wow. It's crazy. First of all, being up close to that, that doesn't disappoint. It's just, I mean, he hasn't aged. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's like... I used to be the pretty one in the room. <laughs> I just give that up. Um, but of course, but you know, there's that, there's that double-edged sword, right? Just to, like, just to dovetail back on, on what we were just talking about. So mm -hmm. he's such a huge part of, of my adolescence and my coming of age story, right? Just like yep. all those John Hughes movies and all, you know, and, and the Rat Pack. And, and, and I recently did, um, Riverdale. So I got mm -hmm. to just like in passing, just like exchange a few words with Molly Ringwald and, and, uh, and she was every 16 year old girl. Yeah. But she wasn't. And, and so my experience of that whole time was washing over me like everybody else, right? The phenomenon of, of all those movies, of all like St. Elmo's Fire. And I mean, the list goes on and on. Right. Um, and it's not until, honestly, it's not until like recently where you acknowledge, well, I had to acknowledge the fact that I jumped into those worlds because I had no choice but to. Right, that, that's all that there was. I had to find an emotional connection because that was all that there was. An emotional connection to all of that anxiety, right? All that teenage angst, all, all the things that are universal about those shows. But did a boy ever pick me up in his car in the Bronx? No. 
<laughs> a, boy, a boy never picked me up in his car in Queens, so. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, there yeah. just were not universal experiences to be had in, in like at face value. There was no prom. There was, you know, just all of that that was going on. Um, and so it's it's so interesting to experience him now in my world. <laughs> so what is, what is it like working with Rob Love? He's lovely. Yeah. He's, he's just, I mean, as you can imagine, has all kinds of stories, uh, has worked with everybody, has been in the company of everybody. And he, and God bless him and thank you. He loves telling those stories. <laughs> so. Well, in between, I mean, you know, in between action and cut is a lot of fun too, but between like cut and action, that's where the <laughs> money is. <laughs> um, what was it like walking on set for the first day? Obviously, because, you know, the show had been around for at least, a se you know, for a season. So yeah. what, what's it like sort of being the new gal in town, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was nervous. Mm. I was definitely, first of all, I hadn't worked in a while because of the COVID mm. of it all. Right. Um, and then uh, uh, our executive producer, um, head writer, Tim Minear, is the reason why I'm there. You know, he, he created this, this part for me. And when, when that sort of starts making its rounds, like we're like, this is who I want and this is who we're getting and this is and this is <laughs> and that and that. It's just like, you, you don't want to disappoint anybody. <laughs> when you get there so so um it's uh daunting and and an incredible responsibility mm -hmm. and a little nerve-wracking um but at the end of the day you know i just have to do what i do and, so and everyone was so welcoming i mean it really is it's 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 a great cast it's a great all those guys like tosh and jim and 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 julian and and ronan and brian they're just yummy so absolutely tommy, yummy to work with who is tommy vega what could you tell me she is um she is every woman. <laughs> she, she really is. She's um, a pleasure to step into at this point in my career. She's um, the, the backstory is that she was at the top of her game. She was an absolute like paramedic, phenom, badass. Um, got married, got pregnant with twins, left her world behind her. Her husband's a restaurateur. And she was like, you know what? I'm gonna raise these babies and you got this. <laughs> and, and that's what they did for eight years. Uh, and then COVID happened and he was forced to close his restaurant and I had to go back to work. So before, you know, she's dealing with, again, like she's every woman, right? She's every woman out there. She's dealing with um, a career that she loved and was really good at and passionate about. But while she was doing all that, her babies didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And now she has another 
part of her heart that is all just, you know, involved and, and, um, and passionate about her family and her children and being a soccer mom and making cookies <laughs> and making all that happen. Um, but she has, she's torn and she's at home thinking about work and she's at work thinking about her babies and how do you balance yes. all of that? Uh, and I love playing that because I don't really have to play it. That's <laughs> my life. I understand that uh, deeply. Um, and I'd love to put a spotlight on that because none of that's easy at all. Uh, you know, my character previous to this had made a very specific choice about how she wanted to live her life and was unapologetic about that. And this is really the first time that I'm playing a woman who d decided that she couldn't have it all um, because she couldn't be what she wanted to be. Right. Um, and now life happened. And so she's kind of forced to, to figure out what that looks like. So you mentioned your, your character's husband's restaurant closed because of COVID. So is, is there, has COVID been brought in a big chunk of the storylines? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I really don't think they, they could have done a, the audience, mm. uh, a service because as right. first responders, as frontline workers, you can't ignore what's happening around us. Mm. And we're not an alternate universe. We're right. a real time universe. Um, so we acknowledge it. We, there are a lot of masks on the set, up on, you know, in front of and behind, of course, behind wow. the camera. Um, uh, but I can assure the audience that you're not gonna be treated to an hour of this. <laughs> that's, that's not what we're doing. That's not the show that we're producing. That's not that. <laughs> so you'll see our eyes, you'll see our faces, you'll see our whole faces. There's a full range of emotion. Um, I did want to ask you, obviously you have a history with Matrix. Could you believe there's another Matrix coming? I thought they, first of all, not to be bitter or anything, um, but um, the people that are actually in the movie, I believe died. And the people that aren't, didn't. Mm. <laughs> so, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> but you know what? You're on Lone Star. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I am. I am indeed. And happily so. Did you ever think, though, you'd see a Matrix 4 movie? No. I, I mean, I, yeah. I really did. I, I, I'm so curious about yeah. where they're going with this and what's their jumping off point and what story they wanted to tell, quite frankly. Mm. Um, because it, it just felt like they told yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, am I wrong about that? <laughs> do, do you do you remember reading the scripts? Did you understand what was going on when you read the scripts? You know, the Matrix scripts were really the beginning of creatives and writers not wanting to let anybody know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so although. 
um, Keanu and Lawrence and Carrie Ann, you know, got full scripts and people who were throughout the movie got, I got scenes. Uh, got it. And like little bits and pieces. So, uh, mm. you know, I'm not in the first one. So I just remember uh, Lawrence telling me about it mm. and thinking, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> and then, and then I went to Sydney. I went to visit him on set in Sydney, and they had just cut together. I remember the the Wachowskis had a dinner party because they wanted to show the cast what they had cut together, and what they had cut together was the. Um, uh, the rescue sequence, mm -hmm. the beginning of the of the rescue sequence, and um, the very beginning. So it was it was Carrie Ann, right? It was it was Hugo, um, basically telling his men they're already dead. Right. Cut to Carrie Ann mm -hmm. picking major butt. And then, and then that whole like uh, that bank sequence scene where they mm -hmm. go to, to to rescue Morpheus, and the first time you see bullet time, and the first time you see, and mm. I'm sitting there, and my, I didn't even know my mouth was open. Like I had no idea how far down my jaw <laughs> had dropped, and then I don't think I had actually taken a breath mm. for like three minutes, <laughs> mm. and I was like oh that's what y'all are doing all the way down here in sydney <laughs> <laughs> like that's what you were talking about <laughs> oh i don't think any of them could have possibly imagined so where is the dress you wore to the royal wedding that dress <laughs> i mean headlines around the world i was i, I was doing a little frock off of the internet <laughs> Is was it really? Yes. Yes. That's all I did. I really didn't wow. think it was I was there were I mean, come on, it was a royal wedding. Right. I'm pretty sure, you know, in the UK, there was absolutely no reason for me to think that I was gonna get any camera time whatsoever. <laughs> you know, I found a really had a really cute hat made. <laughs> that I loved, that I knew I could wear again, <laughs> right? I, I was going to pull that, you know, that little flower off of the side of it. And I was going to wear that little fedora all spring, <laughs> all into the summer. <laughs> I had no delusions right. whatsoever. And um, and I remember a lot of the ladies and I who, uh, who we all knew, you know, who we were friends with were all on a thread and there was this um, concern, right? Because of protocol and what's acceptable. Right. And, you know, none of this and none of that and none of this and none of that. And I got so irritated with, and a lot of it was funny that I can't even repeat, but <laughs> I just remember thinking, well, my dress is some of that and some of that and some of that. And we'll see what happens. And 
but no one's going to be looking at us because we're the ugly Americans. So <laughs> who cares? Don't sell, don't sell yourself short. <laughs> <laughs> so it's in my closet. Um, I'm sure I will donate it at some point because there's no way in hell I could ever wear that thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> which is a shame because I like it but it was uh yeah it was quite it was quite something you know we had to give up our phones um and when we all got back on our bus <laughs> to be taken so back wild. to the hotel and we were given our phones back and and the um the bus had sort of moved out of the dead zone you could mm. hear all the cell phones ringing <laughs> in the like, like all of this this cacophony of pings and <laughs> right. all of these websites and people sending me this and that and pictures and that again that but 10 best dress what <laughs> <laughs> what and my sister who lives in the uk i guess the, like the by the time we got back like that morning all the newspapers and yeah and so i kept as many clipping I, I mean, I think just from newspaper weight alone coming back into the U.S. Because it's like, I can't, I got to save, I got to put this in a book somewhere. I yeah. can't like, it, yeah, it was completely surreal. It was crazy. I know everyone keeps trying to ask you, like, you're going to have a Suits reunion and she's going to come back for it, right? You're going to have a Suits reunion and she's going to come back for it. Yeah, I keep waiting for that. <laughs> <laughs> that that's what I keep saying. Like, when... They moved to the U.S. like, oh, she's going to act again. I'm like, why would that happen? You know, it's nice that she's, you know, narrating a, a documentary and it's going to go to a good cause. But I just don't see her stepping on. I mean, not, I'm, I'm not saying that she can't, but I just can't <laughs> see her just stepping on as Tommy Vega's new paramedic. <laughs> no. <laughs> I can honestly say of all the people that have come in and out of my life, I worry about her the least. <laughs> in fact, not at all. <laughs> she's she's going to be fine. I think she's just fine. Gina, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you. This Stay safe, be well, and hopefully when we do meet, we'll get to meet in person next time. That would be great. That was Gina Torres. The new season of 911 Lone Star premieres on Fox on January 18th. That's it for this episode of The Big Ticket. Thanks for listening. You can also find me in the pages of Variety and on Variety.com. And make sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mark Malkin. Until next time, stay safe and be well. And please, keep wearing those masks. See you soon. <laughs> <laughs>